welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 23, the latest depressing news on antidepressant drugs. The evidence against antidepressant drugs just keeps piling up. Long-time subscribers of my Empowered newsletter will know that I have a particular interest in antidepressant medications, specifically their lack of efficacy, their laundry list of side effects, the utter fraudulence of the biochemical imbalance theory of depression which buttresses their use, and the disease-mongering and diagnostic bracket creep that pharmaceutical companies have engaged in to hoodwink doctors into prescribing them for people who are undergoing perfectly normal emotional reactions to challenging life circumstances. If you're interested in exploring my previous articles on this topic, I've linked them up in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Why do I have such a bee in my bonnet about these medications? Firstly, a high percentage of my clients, especially females who make up the majority of my clientele, are either on antidepressants when they come to see me or have been in the past. Most were prescribed these potent neurotoxic chemicals merely because they were experiencing perfectly understandable distress due to various forms of loss. In one particularly memorable case, a client reported to me that her GP had prescribed antidepressants after her beloved dog died, in case she felt overly sad. To her great credit, the client threw the prescription in the bin on her way out. Secondly, many of the physical and psychological symptoms my clients present with are directly attributable to the effects of antidepressant drugs, although this fact has rarely been acknowledged by their doctors for reasons explained with exceptional clarity and incisiveness in a four-part series on a Midwestern doctor's substack. Uh, this series is on medical injuries more generally, but it's highly relevant to psychotropic-induced injuries, and I've linked up the articles in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And thirdly, as a practitioner, I find that antidepressants both indirectly and directly undermine my therapeutic approach, which is founded on empowering individuals to take charge of their own health. The indirect undermining effect is mediated by the narrative promoted by the medical industrial complex, which is that the complex of psychological and physical effects characterized as depression is a mental illness, a profoundly disempowering framing. I view depression through an evolutionary lens as an adaptive behavior that evolved to keep people focused on the source of their distress until they come up with a solution to resolve the relevant problem. Framing depression as an intensely painful but adaptive experience from which individuals can and do emerge thriving is deeply empowering. The direct undermining effect is mediated by the apathy these drugs induce in people who take them. As one client described it to me, quote, when I was taking those drugs, I didn't feel really sad or really anxious, but I also didn't feel really happy. I just didn't feel much of anything at all." End of quote. This numbing effect of antidepressants was wonderfully satirised by the incomparable Robin Williams, who, at the time of his death by suicide, was taking an antidepressant called metazapine, which carries a black box warning that it may increase suicidal thoughts or actions, in his fuck-it-all stand-up routine, and a warning for the easily offended, there is some naughty language ahead. But there's all these drugs. Zoloft, Prozac. I want to have one drug encompassing it all. Call it fuck it all. <laughs> I don't feel anything. I don't want to do anything. Fuck it all. <laughs> the closest thing to a coma you'll ever be. Fuck it all. I'm sitting here in my own dung. Fuck it all. 
But the scary thing about drugs like that is they always have some horrible side effect, like may cause artificial insemination. Oh. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Like there's a product called Olestra, which is a very strange thing. Olestra, what is that? You know what said on the little side of the chips? It said, may cause anal leakage. <laughs> That's not a side effect. If my ass is going... I think that's an effect, really. I think if it's firing the hole, bad day. If you're going, how you doing, Bob? Oh, just a little anal leakage, Ted. Bob, you want to get out of the pool right now? As the manufactured COVID crisis has been occupying so much of my research and writing time, a rather large list of antidepressant-related publications has accumulated in my Ideas for Articles file. While each of them could easily be the subject of an entire post, when considered altogether, they form quite an interesting picture. I'll summarise each of them briefly and then discuss the implications as I see them. Number one, antidepressants and health-related quality of life for patients with depression. Analysis of the Medical Expenditure Panel Survey from the United States. This study, which was published in the Public Library of Science 1, used the United States Medical Expenditures Panel Survey, a nationally representative database, to identify all patients who were diagnosed with depression. On average, a startling 17.47 million adult patients per year and then to track their health-related quality of life over time, comparing outcomes in those who were prescribed antidepressants with those who weren't. Roughly 58% of all those with a depression diagnosis were prescribed antidepressants, with more women, 60.5%, than men, 51.5%, and more white and Native American than black, Asian, Hawaiian, Native or Pacific Islander people, leaving their doctor's office with a script. Interestingly, people who had never been married were less likely to prescribe antidepressants than those who were or had been married. All participants completed questionnaires at regular intervals that assessed both the physical and mental dimensions of the health-related quality of life. These questionnaires are classified as Patient Reported Outcome, or PRO, measures, in contrast to the standard questionnaires that doctors use to screen patients for depression and anxiety, the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7, respectively, and to assess change in symptoms over time. As I wrote in my article, Who Says You're Depressed or Anxious? Pfizer does. Both the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7 were developed by academics funded entirely by the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, and Pfizer owns the intellectual property and is responsible for distributing the PHQ-9 and GAD-7 to doctors, clearly because the symptoms that these instruments focus on are those most likely to change when patients are prescribed one of Pfizer's top-selling psychoactive drugs, which include venlafaxine or Effexor, sertraline or Zoloft, escitalopram or Lexapro, and alprazolam or Xanax. However, as the authors of this study point out, quote, PRO measures are good indicators that can be utilised in this case because improving patients' outcomes are the ultimate goal of therapy, end of quote. What a novel concept. The ultimate aim of treatment is to improve patient outcomes rather than Big Pharma's bottom line. Participants were asked a series of questions broken down into a physical component summary, PCS, and mental component summary, MCS. The former assessed physical functioning, role limitations due to physical health problems, bodily pain, general health and vitality, that is energy or fatigue, and the latter evaluated social functioning, role limitations due to emotional problems, and mental health, psychological distress and psychological well-being. The researchers then looked at whether depressed people who took antidepressants showed a greater improvement on either the physical or mental components of health-related quality of life than those who didn't take any medication. 
and they didn't. Both groups improved slightly on the mental component summary and there was no difference between the degree of improvement experienced by depressed people who were taking antidepressants compared to those who weren't. And if anything, more people who weren't taking antidepressants improved slightly more on the physical component summary than those who were taking drugs. The authors concluded, quote, the ultimate goal of using antidepressant medications or psychotherapy is to improve patients' important outcomes, such as health-related quality of life. The real-world effect of using antidepressant medications does not continue to improve patients' health-related quality of life over time, as the change in health-related quality of life was comparable to patients who did not use any antidepressant medications, end of quote. They also set their findings into the context of the broader literature on antidepressants. Quote, patients who were receiving either placebo or psychotherapy showed lower relapse rate than those who were on antidepressant medications. These results, to some extent, coincide with the results of this study, that is, their own study, as the use of antidepressant medications was associated with higher rate of relapse compared to placebo, which makes the continuous prescribing of antidepressant medications a matter of preference rather than a necessity, end of quote. Number two, association of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor use with abnormal physical movement patterns as detected using a piezoelectric accelerometer and deep learning in a nationally representative sample of non-institutionalized persons in the US. Digging deeper into the effects of antidepressants on physical functioning, this study examined the effect of the most commonly prescribed class, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, on the intensity of body movement in a cross-sectional sample of 7,162 participants from the 2005-06 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or NHANES, a nationally representative population-based sample of non-institutionalized persons in the U.S., Participants wore a piezoelectric accelerometer, a type of movement tracker, like a Fitbit, on their right hip for at least one week, and the movement data gathered by the device was then compared between participants who were and were not taking SSRIs. Overall, those taking SSRIs moved less. They also showed a slower morning increase in movement and a slower evening decrease in movement than participants who were not taking these drugs, suggesting that the drugs were disrupting their sleep architecture and exacerbating insomnia. And you can see a chart depicting the differences in those who were versus those who weren't on SSRIs in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Understanding that depression itself is known to be associated with decreased movement, the researchers used results on the depression screening questionnaire PHQ-9 to compare movement in depressed people who were and were not taking SSRIs. Their results held. No matter how depressed people were, they still moved less if they were taking SSRIs. The authors proposed an explanation for their findings and set them in the context of the known effectiveness of physical activity in relieving depression. Quote, the overall decreased intensity of movement in the SSRI group is consistent with the central fatigue hypothesis, which emphasizes the importance of monoamine neurotransmitters, such as serotonin and dopamine, in regulating physical activity and fatigue. My note, specifically, increased serotonin in the brain can lead to an earlier onset of fatigue under exertion. Back to the quote from the authors. Robust evidence from animal studies suggests decreased performance, that is, a shorter time to fatigue, in response to increased serotonergic activity. Although similar results have been found in humans, the outcomes are more mixed and the evidence less robust. This association between SSRI use and overall decreased movement is especially important considering the benefits associated with physical activity and exercise for individuals with mild to moderate depression. End of quote. 
Put simply, SSRI antidepressants may undermine the beneficial effects of physical activity on depression by making people feel more tired when they exercise. Good for ongoing sales of the drug, bad for depressed people. Number three, the prevalence of sexual dysfunctions and sexually related distress in young women, a cross-sectional survey. This study surveyed almost 7,000 Australian women aged 18 to 39 years to ascertain the prevalence of sexually related personal distress and female sexual dysfunction. Five domains of female sexual dysfunction were assessed, dysfunctions in desire, arousal, orgasm, responsiveness and sexual self-image. Shockingly, one in five participants reported having at least one female sexual dysfunction, and fully half of these young Australian women experienced sexually related personal distress, either with or without an identifiable female sexual dysfunction. 20.5% of participants were taking psychotropic medication, of which SSRIs are the most commonly prescribed, and these drugs had the most pervasive impact on sexual function of any variable studied. For example, being on a psychotropic medication was associated with more than double the risk of experiencing dysfunctions of sexual desire and arousal, a 48% higher risk of orgasmic dysfunction, a roughly 75% higher risk of dysfunctions of both responsiveness and sexual self-image, and almost double the odds of experiencing non-specific sexually related personal distress. Fuck it all indeed. As the authors of the study point out, quote, sexual well-being is a fundamental human right that approximately one half of young women experience sexually related personal distress and one in five women have an FSD, that is female sexual dysfunction, with sexual self-image dysfunction predominating, is concerning, end of quote. You want to know what else is concerning? The fact that prescriptions for psychotropic drugs, especially SSRIs, are handed out like lollipops to this demographic group with absolutely no regard for the devastating effect that treatment-induced sexual dysfunction has on their well-being, not to mention on their relationships. Is it just me, or are you starting to wonder whether this is deliberate? Healthy, intimate relationships can be a source of tremendous support for people who are going through tough times. Drugs that reduce sexual satisfaction can undermine such relationships, driving distressed young women out of the arms of their lovers and into the waiting class of the medical industrial complex. Again, good for Big Pharma, bad for us. Speaking of that, number four. Antidepressants produce persistent G-alpha-S associated signaling changes in lipid rafts following drug withdrawal. Not such a catchy title, but this study delved into the reasons why withdrawing from antidepressants is so difficult. As I discussed in my article, Antidepressant Discontinuation Syndrome, an under-recognized and rapidly escalating problem, many people experience unpleasant symptoms including insomnia, anxiety, irritability, impaired concentration, headache, lethargy and low mood when they stop taking antidepressants. These symptoms are frequently misinterpreted either by the patient or the prescribing doctor, or both, as a relapse of their depression, causing them to believe that they need to take the drug on an ongoing basis in order to function. In this study, researchers demonstrated that the reason for both the slow onset of action of these drugs, some can take up to two months to exert their activity, and the distressing withdrawal symptoms that they cause are due to the fact that the drugs collect gradually in cholesterol-rich membrane structures called lipid rafts, affecting the function of a protein called G-alpha-S protein, which in turn ramps up the production of an intracellular signaling molecule called cyclic AMP. When people stop taking antidepressants, lipid raft G-alpha-S signaling is impacted for an extended period of time, causing many of the disturbing withdrawal effects. 
There are some differences between individuals in how they metabolize G-alpha-S and also some differences between antidepressants in how they impact on G-alpha-S signaling, explaining why some people can abruptly stop taking antidepressants without ill effects, while others need to be weaned off them very slowly to avoid horrendous withdrawal effects. Number five, individual differences in response to antidepressants, a meta-analysis of placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials. It's become increasingly clear over the years that antidepressants don't work any better than placebos or inactive dummy pills when pitted against them in randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. Never one to give up in the face of comprehensive, repeated failure, however, Big Pharma and its white-coated drug pushers retreated to a new position. Some antidepressants work better for certain people, so doctors should simply try one antidepressant after another on their depressed patients until they find the magic pill that drives their blues away. And the evidence for that contention? Nada, as the authors of this study point out. Quote, Despite the paucity of studies designed to detect treatment by individual interactions, there is a widely held assumption that individual differences moderate the effect of antidepressants on depressive symptoms, that is, response. End of quote. And after conducting a meta-analysis of 91 randomized clinical trials involving 18,965 participants on the use of antidepressants in major depression, they concluded that the belief that antidepressant therapy can be personalized based on individual treatment effects is as big a crock of crapola as all the other overblown claims made for these drugs that promised you better life through chemistry. Quote, responses to all antidepressant classes were not more variable than responses to placebo, end of quote, meaning that depressed people's response to placebo showed as much variation as their response to taking any type of antidepressant drug. Whether or not a depressed person feels better when given a pill that they're told may help them seems to pretty much depend on how much they believe that the drug will work for them at that point in time, rather than the ingredients in the pill. Quote, data from randomized clinical trials show that individuals with symptoms of depression assigned to receive the same antidepressant at the same dose and for the same period can experience very different outcomes, end of quote. And furthermore, quote, we found no evidence that the association between treatment group and variability was associated with baseline depression severity, end of quote. Or, in plain English, people with severe depression weren't any more likely to feel better on any type of antidepressant than on placebo. Summing up, antidepressant drugs don't improve your health-related quality of life, reduce your level of physical activity, which is a key factor in alleviating depression, wreck your sex life, and then make you feel like crap on a cracker when you try to stop taking them. And for all that, you're about as likely to feel better after taking them as you would after taking a placebo. Gee, sign me up now. But wait, there's more. I've seen an increasing trend toward the prescription of atypical antipsychotics, drugs that were developed to treat severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, to people who didn't feel any better for taking antidepressant drugs. A social worker colleague confirmed my observations, reporting that a concerningly high percentage of her clients, mostly women who are experiencing postnatal depression but with no evidence of psychosis, have been prescribed drugs like quetiapine or Seroquel, Risperidone, Risperdal, Aripiprazole or Abilify, and Olanzapine or Zyprexa to calm them down or help them sleep when the antidepressants they were prescribed failed to help. But another study found that adding an atypical antipsychotic to an antidepressant was associated with a 45% increased risk of death compared to adding a second antidepressant, which isn't any more likely to help the depression, according to study number five, which I've discussed earlier on. All this research raises important questions in my mind. Do doctors know this? If they do, why do they keep prescribing drugs that don't work, have horrendous side effects, and could kill their patients? And if they don't, why not? 
The onus is on them to ensure that the medications they prescribe are safe and effective, but too many are letting their patients down, in some cases all the way to the grave. In my next podcast episode, I'm going to summarise several recent articles on the therapies that actually work for depression. And in the meantime, I highly recommend reading Midwestern Doctors' excellent series on why most doctors suck so badly at recognising the harm that their treatments inflict on patients, as it's highly relevant to this topic. And besides that, it's a damn fine read. And I've linked up the four parts of this series in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.